Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast hosted by Renew.org. Just want to let everybody know that we officially have a date and a location set for a 2024 national gathering. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, we just encourage you to go online to Renew.org. Grab your tickets today. We'd love for you to be there and bring your team if you're a part of a church or church staff. On this episode, Darren Overstreet describes how to equip the next generation for leadership in a post-Christian society. He describes the societal dilemma of postmodernism and progressivism and the impact that that plays in Christianity today. He also describes how to help the next generation understand truth. He suggests helping younger people to look into what a practice or belief's roots are, not just blindly following or easily following any belief that sounds good. Let's go ahead and check out what Darren has to say together, and we hope that this material will richly bless and help your ministry today. Equipping the next generation for leadership in a post-Christian society. Probably the longest title of the conference. Uh, And I just want to say, before we get started, um, this class is not necessarily the nuts and bolts, really, of training tomorrow's leaders. There's some of that, but... What I want to do is I want to have a discussion. Um, there's, some seats, there's some seats kind of scattered here. I want to have a discussion uh, of what I believe is sort of under the hood of the mindset and the worldview that we are exposed to and will be further moving into the future and some ideas about intentionally discipling the next generation for success in ministry. Does that make sense? Um, my name is Darren Overstreet, and I am from Tampa, Florida. I lead the Anchor Point Church in Tampa, and um, I've been a senior minister there. My wife and I have been there for nine months, so we're new to Tampa. Still not used to the humidity, but wow, it's hot. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I spent, I know, right? Get a, Go ahead and laugh. Um, anybody from Seattle in here? No? Okay. Nope, no one from Seattle. I'm, really, I'm it. I'm the only guy I've met from Seattle at this conference. But we spent 27 years leading ministries in Tacoma and Seattle and all over Washington State. And actually, this class, this picture right here represents why this class is important to me. And probably, if you're like me, it's, like, it's, it's why it's important to you. So we've got our campus ministry in the middle there, those pictures. We've got my kids. My kids are all grown up and have their own faith, and they are actually experiencing a world that is completely different than when I was in college, right? Uh, the Bible's the same, the world is different. I think we heard that very loud and clear this morning. Uh, that's our staff in Tampa, and this is now, this is my son and his wife, and I, in about three weeks, Lord willing, will be a grandfather. So what I'm doing now, like a lot of you, I see, I see uh, old and young in the group here, but what I'm trying to do is help equip the next generation for leadership. So that's what we're doing here. And uh, I want to read a scripture in 1 Timothy 4 to start, because there's a really good picture of a guy training a next generation leader in Paul and Timothy, right? And in 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul says this to Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. And then he goes on to exhort Timothy to just stay with it. 
Now, what we have to understand, and you guys all know this, I'm talking to ministers, a lot, a lot of ministers here, but Timothy wanted out of Ephesus. He was stressed out. He wasn't having a great time. He was leading people that weren't necessarily easy to lead. They weren't really following him. Uh, so Timothy was having some anxiety in the ministry. And I think he writes to Paul saying, this isn't exactly going the way I thought it was going to go. I actually liked life better when I was with you on the mission field. Can we do that again? And Paul doesn't rescue him at all. He says, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, what I want you to do is double down on your example. I want you to really give attention to your life. And I want you to devote yourself to preaching and teaching. And I could just hear Timothy say, I just got done telling you these people are rebellious. They don't do what I say. I mean, when Paul says he fought wild Ephesus or wild beasts in Ephesus, that was people, right? So Timothy's having a tough time, and Paul says, what I'm trying to help you do is build resiliency, more reliance on the Holy Spirit, and to develop in you the ability to teach with power and authority. So our task, guys like me, whatever role you serve in the church, is to equip and empower the next generation of leaders. Amen? I want to talk about ministering in the Pacific Northwest for a minute. Um, anybody lived in the Pacific Northwest before? Anybody tempted to go live in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, yeah, nope. Um, I love the Pacific Northwest, but I'll tell you, it taught us a lot about the mission, especially, especially the challenges we face as we sort of pass the baton on to the next generation of leaders. We had a very young staff when, during our time in Seattle. We had 16 people on our staff, 13 of which were converted in the city of Seattle, and, on, and those 13 were under the age of 35. So it was a great staff. Many of them came into the church not knowing much about the Bible. Um, they weren't really, I mean, they just weren't really, you know, Bible belt people, right? And in our church, we had at least at one point 200 people under the age of 35. So when our hands full, mentoring and empowering the next generation in Seattle. Now, depending on who you ask, Seattle is the either the second or the third most progressive city in America. What's the number one? San Francisco. <laughs> the two that flip-flop are Portland and Seattle. Um, they really do. And you may know Seattle uh, during the pandemic as a place called the Chop Zone. Did you guys see that? It was crazy. I lived about 20 minutes from that, but basically it was a it was a takeover of a six square block, six square blocks in on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And the way they took it over is they stormed the police station. The police, instead of saying, you know, no, don't do that, they just walked away from the police station. And so anarchists basically took over the entire six block square. They put up roadblocks. They had AR-15s. It was crazy. And it lasted a couple, I think about six weeks until some people started to die and then they shut it down. But when the mayor was asked, what are you going to do about the chop zone? The mayor said something that actually really typifies the ethos of Seattle and the things that actually we had to deal with as we studied the Bible with people in Seattle. The mayor said, oh, this is not a bad thing. This is a summer of love. Because this is giving us the, these people are obviously hurt and it's giving us the opportunity to, for all of their feelings to be affirmed and validated. That's what she said. Uh, in Seattle during the, the pandemic, I led a church of almost 600 people, and we were mandated to shut down. 
I'm just telling you a couple crazy stories so you get the picture of Seattle, right? Uh, we were mandated to shut down, couldn't meet in our building up on Queen Anne because we were not an essential business. Did that happen to anybody out here? You guys got shut down for a little bit or threatened to shut down? Okay. Well, essential businesses in Seattle were things like pot shops and liquor stores. So it's a very post-Christian place. It's also the, the most educated large city in America, meaning it just has more college degrees than any other city in America per capita. And on top of that, this is important to, for what I'm going to talk about a little bit. On top of that, it was discovered by two visionary pioneers, Lewis and Clark. And you're probably like, yeah, I didn't come to a history class. But here's why I tell you that. These two discovered the Northwest, but to even get to the Northwest, they had to get over several mountain ranges, and most people either gave up or died, right? And they made it. And what, what, what that, I read a book about the spirituality of the Northwest, and what that says is that the lasting imprint, the ethos of the city is one of just basically um, people that are rugged, ambitious, don't take no for an answer, and very passionate if they have a goal. That's the city of Seattle. That's why Microsoft started there. You know, largest software company in the history of the world. Amazon's there. I could go on and on. It's really, it's really a city full of entrepreneurs and passionate people. And, you know, we, we know as Christians, we have in us, we are made in the image of God, right? We have in us in a desire to seek spiritual things. And that's a good thing, except when it leads you to false gods. People in Seattle are spiritual people. They literally will die. They will lay their lifetime down for things like salmon and trees and the environment. So our job really is to say, you are serving something that's not the Creator God. That passion is leading you to Him. And try to turn people away from a worldly ethos to a God who's intimate and loving and cares about them. So the reason I bring this up is I think equipping the next generation has everything to do with looking at where we are today. Those talks this morning were wonderful, by the way, for this. Uh, but looking at where we are to the, today and, and finding out how do people come to a knowledge of truth? What does that mean? How do they discover truth about themselves, their community, their purpose in life? And then connecting them with the biblical reality that is Creator God. That's their life. That's their purpose. There's no other salvation in anything else, right? We know that. Um, last summer, I published a book called Wildfire. Um, in fact, I think I might have a slide. And it's actually been pretty successful, but it's a book that talks about the impact of progressive Christianity in the church. And honestly, um, I've got a master's degree in missional theology, and a lot of it is just my observations from Seattle and how a post-Christian city has affected the mission. So I, I, think it's pretty, I think it's a pretty good, fair, and balanced treatment of progressive Christianity, progressive theology. And I don't know how much of that is reaching your... Raise your hand if that's reaching your churches at all. Yeah? Some, some hands are down. Well, I'll quote David Young this morning. You know, good for you. <laughs> it's coming, though. It really is. Um, if you, okay, raise your hand if you have a university in your town or a college. Well, if you just raise your hand, but you didn't the first time, that's a progressive city, basically. Uh, so if you do campus ministry, 
you really, we really have to know what missional waters we're swimming in. And it does change the way we empower and equip the next generation because we live in a post-Christian society. You guys know all that means is that our society has stopped defaulting to God for identity and purpose. They're trying to solve their issues without using God. Uh, I really appreciate the talk this morning by David Young because he did remind us really well that we're in a post-Christian society. And he said something, he alluded to something my wife said over breakfast a few days ago before I came here. She said, you know, we're not really in a post-Christian society. We're in an anti-Christian society. He really did explain that well. All of those stories that he, that he explained, I've, I've dealt with in Seattle. I've been, I've been exposed to. So, um, among other things, the fruit of a post-Christian world, honestly, you guys, is the distortion of truth. It is affecting the way people think. If you're under 35, especially if you're under 30, you are being trained to think about identity and meaning and reality and purpose that's anti, at least post-Christian, probably anti-Christian. And my book does a good job, I think, of of explaining the ins and outs of progressive Christianity, and especially what postmodern thought and critical theory have done to the, the thinking and the logic of the next generation. So, I want to read you something. The day was met March 22, 2022. The place was inside the U.S. Senate Judicial Confirmation Room. Katanji Brown Jackson was asked by U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn the following question. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? And she answered, I can't. I'm not a biologist. You guys have heard this? It set off several minutes of tense discussion. The debate that ensued was difficult for a lot of people to understand. Now, I watched that, and I remember seeing... I remember honestly feeling bad for Justice Jackson. She herself is a woman, right? She's also a very educated and accomplished woman. She grew up in Miami. She went to Harvard, graduated magna cum laude, and then she graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School. And after graduation, she worked her way through the law profession as a clerk, a district court judge, worked on several commissions, served as a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals, and finally was nominated and appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court reaching a goal she set as a high school student. She's an extraordinary woman with a compelling story, and I do believe she knows the definition of a woman. You do too, right? That set off, that exchange though, set off a firestorm of debate. And I remember reading the papers and so-called experts in gender weighed in. And they said, no, 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 no. This is, that was a great answer because here's the thing. It's really difficult to answer because the real answer is so complex and nuanced. That's what I heard. Weeks before that, Leah Thomas, a transgender woman who was born a biological male, uh, won the Women's National Champion for a 500-yard freestyle. And the conversation about womanhood in that confirmation hearing descended in a political and ideological back and forth that's only gotten worse. But here's the truth. Here's the real truth, not the distorted truth. Um, Male and female is not nuanced and not complex. It's very biblical. And therein, you guys, lies the crux of our current post-Christian dilemma. And that is what our young people are bathed in. That's what they're exposed to. 
That's the underpinnings of everything that they're learning. It's gotten so distorted, truth has, that not even a Supreme Court justice will touch it with a 10-foot pole. She She basically decided, I would rather not speak about it than speak about it and get blasted. That's where she was at. You with me? This is not a recent dynamic. This goes back to the Scriptures. In John 18, you guys remember Pilate, right? Pilate was like, what is going on with Jesus? And his wife even came out. You remember the scene and says, hey, that guy you're dealing with? Let him go. He's trouble. I had a dream about him. Let him go. And Pilate's like, I can't let him go. I got to appease this crowd. So he's having this really intense, what I think is a really great glimpse into postmodern thought conversation with Jesus. And at the end, he asks this question Well, what is truth? Remember that? He ends up offering Jesus up to appease a crowd when in his heart he knows that the truth was Jesus was innocent. You could actually call that the most tragic postmodern conundrum in the history of the world. He knew what truth was. He was just afraid to say it. He was afraid to say, this guy's innocent, do what you need to do, but I'm letting him go. I think the next generation, the next generation of leaders needs us to equip them to boldly step into the arena of truth. That's what they need. If you keep reading the story of Pilate in chapter 19, verse 8, um, it says that Pilate became very afraid. That Greek word just means apprehensive, reluctant, anxious, and really hesitant to make a decision. Thus is the case when you're preaching the Word today in some places. And I think this whole discussion calls us to be like the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12.32 from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It will require us as trainers to really jump in there and boldly teach the next generation what truth really is, actually know some stuff about what I'm talking about, Um, I love that Resilient came out. I love that we're focusing on that because the truth is it's coming soon to a theater near everybody, right? Uh, It's affecting the way people preach, come to a knowledge of self, come to a knowledge of identity. You know what the the first postmodern question about self is these days? The first postmodern question about self is what do I desire? You know what the first biblical question about self is? What does God desire of me? It's completely flipped over. Um, and this is a tough topic to talk about. I gotta tell you a funny story. Um, well, this is this is a I wrote this book, and here's a here's a quote I got from, from a campus minister. So if you work with young people these days on any college campus, you're probably gonna run into this stuff. There seems to be something different these days with college students. They think differently, rarely seem to default to Scripture for identity, and are increasingly afraid to act in any way that may get them accused of passing judgment. That's built into postmodern thought. Some are very afraid to disagree with others, others, especially on issues related to morality. Here's a funny story. You see this group right here? This group of 
of young people, very diverse group of young people, is a group I was, I was invited. One of the campus ministers in Florida read my book and said, you got to come down and talk to my students because we are just a, we're just a mess with this stuff. They're having, they're having a hard time studying about it with their friends. They're having a hard time calling people on sin. It's, we're all over the place. So I went down there and I walked into that room. Now look at them, right? And look at me. There's an age gap, right? I walked into that group and I was like, you know, I wrote this book. I know some stuff about postmodernism. I know what the next generation needs. I do have some kids, but this kind of freaks me out a little bit. So I preached to them and I broke down. I really preached a thick lesson. I talked about postmodernism. I talked about the underpinnings of critical theory, what you should look out for. I talked about, I talked about sexual identity. I just went for it. And then I sat down. I'm like, man, I don't even know what's going to happen next. <laughs> Someone got up and prayed, and I looked up, and there's a line of kids from me to Cindy back there waiting to talk to me. And I'm like, well, that's it. They're going to they're shoot me, right? <laughs> they're going to kill me. And actually, it was the opposite. They were like, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is our life. We speak up for God. We get canceled. Our ministers aren't even talking about this stuff. They were, one by one, they asked questions that were related to the stuff we're talking about. Um, it really is, it really is important. Postmodern thought, by the way, what do I have next there? Postmodern thought, oops, is coaching our kids out of being resilient. Guy I know leads a church in Pullman, Washington, where Washington State University is. We were mentoring he and his wife. And he calls me about four years ago. He said, Darren, he's like 34 years old. He said, Darren, whatever you're doing, stop. Order the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Anybody read that? You like that book? Stop what you're doing and read it. So I literally stopped, got it on Kindle, and read it in like three days. And I was like, whoa, this is exactly what I'm trying to talk about. These guys basically say, Postmodern thought is coaching kids into fragility. It's, coach, it's coaching them into, I think I got to scream louder than that guy, whoever that is. It's coaching them into distortions about truth and reality. When you go to a counselor, if you've ever gone to a counselor, you know what they do? Their job is to coach you out of cognitive distortions by helping you have healthy thought patterns. Postmodern thought is coaching them right into unhealth. And it's intentional. It's tragic. And so, as Mark Sayers, an author I love, says, um, progressive theology seems to be building a kingdom without a king. Because with Jesus as your king, that's a resilient life. You know, I like what Anthony said this morning. You know, uh, I think it was him. There's no negotiating after you get baptized. It's over. But we are happier that way. With a surrendered life, given up to King Jesus, we're happy, joyful, and content in the way we need to be. God knows what it means to be fully human. The world does not know this. So I would actually say, I would change it a little bit and say progressive theology is actually building a kingdom with self as king. Okay? So I want to do a couple things. I want to throw out some practical suggestions and then use the rest of our time for a little discussion. Okay? Now, these are things that I think that I've come to realize will help build 
resiliency resist this postmodern thought in the, in the next generation and help tomorrow's leaders have confidence as they lead. We're, we're taught, we are told to equip them. I'll get out of the way here. We're told to equip them, empower them. They are our future leaders. I mean, one of these days, my kids, your kids are going to be leading and I'm going to be sitting back there close to the exit in case, you know, I have a heart attack or something. And my job now is to equip the next generation in the way, like men of Isaacar, we need to help them understand the times and respond. So, I'm going to go through these quickly, okay? Number one, engage today, today's conversation partners. In chapter 11 of my book, I talk about being not culturally relative, but biblically resilient. And one of the things that is, is you have to know the conversation partners in your society. Uh, what is a conversation partner? These are opportunities that society presents to us to show people what they really are after is God. You might, you guys remember Acts 17? When Paul walks into Athens, and he walks in there ready to share his faith. These are very Greek people. They've, they've syncretized everything about God. He walks in there, and the Bible says he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols, right? And so he starts talking to them. Two people he talks to are groups that totally have a distorted view of God, the Epicureans. The Epicureans just believed that God, the gods existed. They were just these, they lived these fat, happy lives away from us, right? They lived so far off from the real, normal person's problems that they couldn't relate to the average person. The Stoics were people that saw all emotions as either incredibly indulgent on the negative side or indulgent on the positive side. And those are unhealthy. So let's live in the rigid, disciplined middle. And let's just be like this. When someone's stoic, that's what they're doing, right? Both have a totally distorted view of God. God is not far off, does care about our problems. And we're not supposed to make this thing called Christianity just this exercise in self-discipline. So Paul saw a conversation partner. He said, whoa, this is perfect. I'm going to take their worldly ideas and connect them to a God, the God of the, the, God, the Creator God. And he does that. One of the things I hear a lot from young people, ready for this? If you're, if you're a pulpit minister, you need to remember this too. Um, a lot of the young people, I did, a, I did a workshop in St. Louis not long ago, and, and I was taking some Q&A, and there was two kids right over here. They were 16-year-old boys. They were right over there, and they had their hands up. And when, when two, after this talk, when two teenage boys raised their hand, I'm like, could go either way, right? It could go either way. They got up and they said, thank you. This is the conversation. This is my school. This is what we're dealing with. Keep it up. And one of the things I hear from young people a lot is this. My ministers are answering questions from the pulpit that we're not even asking. And so they're left alone to sort of navigate faith in a hostile environment. Really, that's what it is. So I think we ought to really gather around our young people. We ought to ask them what they think. In Seattle, I started this thing called the Next Generation Council. And it was kind of a scary thing to start, but check it out. It was a guy that worked at Nordstrom in my ministry. He's 29 years old. He was, he was 
kind of in the business department in Nordstrom, called me and says, can we have lunch? And I said, sure. I go sit down with him for lunch at the corner bakery. And we, he says, look at this. I want you to read this. And he handed me this one-page sheet of paper. It was an email from him and his team uh, to, to him and his team from the CEO, Nordstrom CEO. It's a big company. And it says, as we make decisions for our company, you are the future. We want to get your perspective on all things concerning the decisions in the company. He said, Darren, this is the business world. We need to do this in the church. And I, it really stopped me in my tracks. I had intentionally, I had intentionally worked to gain the perspective of the next generation. And some of you are doing that well. I had to really put a lot of energy into it. I put together a council with a couple singles on it, teens. Well, teens don't have much to offer. They really do. They, they absolutely do. College students, young professionals. And I would actually, I would actually run the big ideas in the church by them. And this guy from Nordstrom, I said, you're going to lead this group since it was your idea. You lead it. And I'll give you the questions. And you, you report back to me. It was so awesome. Now, a couple times I tested this. And this is a frightening experience. If you're going to do this, you better just have thick skin. A couple times I was going to do a really big major sermon in the church. You know, some sort of New Year kickoff or vision sermon, right? So I sent this young group my sermon notes. Exactly. Someone groaned. Someone groaned over there. The minute I hit send, I'm like, it's over. My life is over. They got back to me and they said, this is awesome. Now, there's a couple things that I wish you would say differently. They didn't violate my conscience. They didn't violate Scripture. They just know what resonates with them. And I got into this habit with them. Um, it actually really helped me. I mean, it helped me because I really connected more with the younger people in the church. But I learned a lot about life through their eyes. And we've got to do that. Postmodern thought has trained people to be critical but not critical thinkers. It's removing critical thinking from the atmosphere. And we need to train our younger people, if we're going to teach them to be resilient, to think critically and biblically about all of life's topics. Don't shy away from the hot topics. Talk about sexual identity. Talk about race. I, I know ministers who are like, oh, this Roe v. Wade thing, I am running for cover. You better talk about it in your church because they're all talking about it. Teach them, though, how to discern what the truth is from Scripture. Don't just get up in front of them and say, um, here's the thing. Shut up and I'll tell you what the truth is. That You're just going to get like, you know, it's not going to work. But what I think we need to do, what I'm trying to do, and I'm getting a lot of advice from the next generation and from my children, especially my daughter, is teach them how to think through the topics relating all of our conversation partners in society back to the God of Scripture. Are you talking about the underpinnings of postmodern thought? Are you reading books like that about critical theory? And are you engaging? You know what the theology behind Enneagrams is? Does anybody, I mean, all your kids in your church are, are doing it. Do you know what's behind it? Probably need to read a little bit about that. Have a conversation. It's, it's really bad, actually. It's not good. Enneagrams. The one, two, three, four personality test. Yeah. 
Um, talk about AI. Talk about all the challenges that they are coming up against, but use society's conversations. Pull them into Scripture. Did, did God miss anything in the Bible? Of course He didn't. It applies to everything. Number two, walk with them and disciple them. Paul walked with Timothy. One of the things I see in my generation is sometimes training is becoming less and less about walking with it and more just getting with for a cup of coffee, throwing out a few things and letting them, letting them go. We, we, they need us to walk with them. They're actually the most talented generation. This new Gen Z generation is the most talented generation in the history of the world and the smartest. But you know what? They fear change a lot. It makes them super anxious. When I was a young Christian, I just I had change thrown at me all the time, and I grew because of it. But they need us to walk with them and sit down with the Scriptures and really get involved in their lives. Encourage a high view of Scripture uh, and let it lead to a creative missional imagination. The Bible is not dry and uncreative. Our methods can get a little stuck in a rut, but our methods are not canonized, right? Scripture is. So let them, you know, point them back to Scripture, but hold it high above. I like what Shedank was talking about this morning. Any view of the Bible that is brought down to our level is not a view that's going to change the world. Uh, and you got to know what a progressive view of the Bible holds. Pour into their families. Um, I was in a class yesterday, and we were just having this discussion about families, and this young guy comes up to me afterwards and says, what is your best advice as a young minister and a new father? He's a youth minister. What's your best advice, Marie? And I said, find godly men in your life, ask them to mentor you, sit down with them, and let them speak into your life. That's what we need to do to equip the younger generation. They're going through it. Um, Paul was a mentor to Timothy. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, 15-16, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely and persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. We need to speak into their life and their doctrine. You know what the number one source of inspiration and information for kids is right now? Podcasts. You have no idea what's behind a podcaster's life. Right? Man, that dude's inspiring. Really? I mean, I, maybe, but we need to help them see that it's a life well lived that speaks to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means walking with them. And one of the things I explain in my book that we really need to understand is that the actual agenda of postmodern thought is the destruction of family. Karl Marx was a family hater. Critical theory is all about the destruction of family. It's it's intended to denigrate the family. So we need to really make sure that we highlight the family. Teach deeply about the Holy Spirit. I appreciate it. I think it was um, Tony this morning. Someone was talking about a, a more robust theology of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm not a lifer Church of Christer. Raise your hand if you're a lifer Church of Christer. I came in Church of Christ in college, but... Um, one of the things that I've noticed about the Church of Christ is that the Holy Spirit contains mystery, some not knowing, some ambiguity. And so we've kind of shunned that a little bit because we, we like to know everything, right? We like to know it, bolt it down to the floor. There's no debates about it. Well, that doesn't really work. In fact, if you do that, that is you're tilling the ground for progressive thought. You're tilling the ground for, for postmodern thought. It capitalizes 
on an overly rigid hermeneutic. Number six, uh, teach them to preach, not communicate. And I'm going to fly through the rest of these. First Timothy 4, 2-3, Paul says, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. I think I heard loud and clear today, and I know this, that in, in North America, preaching's out of season. Isn't it? But a friend of mine said something. He said, Darren, what I've noticed about millennial preachers, a lot of them is that they're so good at almost saying something. Have you noticed that? They get right to the line. They tell a lot of stories and parables. And they almost say something. We need to teach them to let the Scriptures be the Scriptures, preach them boldly, convince them of the power of that, and give them the courage that comes with doing that because it's hard these days. Um, In Seattle, I started this whole thing by talking about in Seattle, the churches that built strongest followings were were churches that were unapologetic about preaching preaching the Word. They got up there and said, you may not like this, but you cannot be a homosexual and be a Christian. You cannot sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and be a Christian. And they just laid it out. And tons of people got baptized. That's what really works, is preaching God's Word powerfully. Um, Counter-cultural message of grace and truth. I grew up in in Seattle with many of our neighbors as gay married couples. So we had to really teach our church that truth is important in a postmodern world, but a radical idea of grace and love is too. We've got to teach our are people to lean into people like never before, but boldly fall back on the Scriptures as the standard for lives. I mean, I'd never forget reaching out to our two neighbors. Two of our best friends were guys that were married, and um, they were some of our best friends. But when it came down to it, when he asked me you know, about being a Christian and what do you think, I had to really be honest with him that I, I love him as a person, he deserves the same honor and dignity as everyone else, but I don't believe in my faith that that's a lifestyle that you should be living. And because we had a good relationship, he really understood that, and he really respected that even though we disagreed. So, uh, encourage new ideas and creativity and healthy methods of ministry evaluation. I can get into those if, if we want. There's a few things to say about that. But basically, here's what I'm trying to say, okay? We live in a world where truth is being distorted left and right. Equipping the next generation of leaders means to understand that, to to mind those depths and to teach them to navigate that, which is going to require a lot of us as trainers. But I'm telling you, the, the young people that I have trained, the young people that I've run into, the young people that you saw in that picture... They're really up for it. They're really ready for it. They want this. That's the world they live in, and they need us to equip them. You know, Renew, one of Renew's seven core values uh, is lead courageously. And we are at a time where courage is not just, you know, who can scream the loudest, who can bring the most visitors to church, who can baptize the most friends. Courage, right now, today, and moving forward, is who will stand on God's Word unapologetic, 
not afraid of the fragile sensibilities in the audience, and lovingly lay it out and hold people to the truth of God's Word. And it takes fortitude to do that, and it takes fortitude to stay there. And this is what's helped me. This kind of thinking is is what's helped me as I put on my trainer hat and I equip the next generation. And by the way, I'm always asking them, what do you guys want to know? What is your world like? Here's my glasses, but what does it look what does the world look like through your glasses? I am I am trying to be a student of their world. So that's my experience. Thanks again for joining us today for the Real Life Theology Podcast. We hope that this material on helping equip the next generation can encourage you to take this and equip young people in your churches today. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning in to a Renew.org podcast. We want to invite you to join us this April in Indianapolis for our 2024 gathering, Courageous Renewal. We will feature speakers such as Anthony Walker, Tina Wilson, Bobby Harrington, Jonathan Storman, and so much more. Secure your spot now at renew.org slash events. That is renew.org slash events. Hope to see you there.